I'm going to give the people what they want. Sensation, horror, shock. Well, you don't have to spit in my eye, do you? Now, let's do this a little faster. Yes, that's it. Throw it away. I want you to get naked so you can tell me the truth about my money. Have you ever heard anything so awful? <laughs> Bert! What do you know about that? Welcome to the Cult Movies Podcast. My name is Anthony King, and joining me from the left coast, my lovely co-host is... Hi, it's me, Kristen. Hi, Kristen. Have you started your books on tape career yet? Oh, no. I forgot to (coughs) find someone to pay me to do that. (laughs) Well, good luck. Listeners, send her, uh, you know, wherever she needs to go. I don't know where you go for that sort of thing. Neither Um, do I. Okay, well... (laughs) maybe maybe you have a career change ahead of you and like this is this is the episode where someone's like we're looking for a new reader i'm available she's available that's right okay anyways this podcast stop talking about books on tape Kristen. geez uh it's all about author and critic and historian danny perry around these parts and his cult movies books and we're going to discuss a movie from the first book. And this is a big one. This is the big one where everybody was like, oh, should I talk about this one? No, I'm too scared to. But we found the perfect guest for this one. Uh, she's back for round three. Three, I think. Three, round three. Mm-hmm. It's Carmelita Valdez. Hello, Carmelita. Hi, friends. uh this is very exciting i was just so the episode before i guess two episodes before you is was dirk and ryan and they were tossing around what movie they want to talk about and ryan was like man no one is going to talk about this movie and then that same day is when i contacted you and i was like hey do you want to talk about you want to come on the show again and i think this was like one of two movies you mentioned and I was like, it is yeah. do it, do it. We're doing it. Let's get this <laughs> over with. So anyways, this is really exciting. I wanted to do this. You didn't have to put a gun to my head, twist my arm, bribe me. I know. Yes. Thank you. And the I've Lord. been counting down the days. I've been really excited to talk about this. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really exciting. Well, for God's sakes, let's just get right into it. What are we talking about? Carmelita? Oh, well, we're talking about a masterpiece. I say, Citizen Kane, 1941, directed by Orson Welles, screenplay by Herman J. Mankiewicz and Orson Welles, regardless of the controversy around that. <laughs> and I mean, this is a big one, but okay, I want to get this out of the way. Just let's just shake it out. No pressure. <laughs> I'm not an Orson Welles expert. I'm not a Citizen Kane expert. I'm here as a lover of cult cinema and cinema at large. 
We don't have to be experts tonight. No. I'm just going to gush about this movie. No. Uh, Kristen, now you're aware of the list and the remaining movies. Was this, did you always look at this one as maybe one that was looming large uh, above our heads uh, for the show? Was it like impending uh, in, in your mind at all? I guess it's uh, like there is a lot like wrapped up in it being the best movie I've ever made. Um, but there's also this other thing where it's like because of that, like it's surprising to see it in the cult movies book, like sure. something like Casablanca, um, which is also like just a standard classic at this point. So I, it, Danny it doesn't talk about like the history of this as a cult movie, and I don't really know anything about it, but I'm curious about that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. In his essay, it's more of there, you know, there's the background. He talks about Pauline Kael's essay a lot, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, and but you know, it's it's more of a standard review uh, that he writes about, and it's a good review. Um, of course, I mean he's a great writer. Duh. Um, hi, this is a Danny Perry podcast. We like Danny Perry here. Uh, at least I do. I'm sorry. I can't speak for everybody. Uh, but it's, um, yeah, this was one like it never, you know, I was surprised that it's taken four, three and a half seasons to get to Citizen Kane, honestly, because I don't think I don't find it in an intimidating movie. Um, I know like, you know, it was number one on the AFI list for a decade whenever they did it and then i don't think it is anymore whatever it is uh ranking movies is so arbitrary but you know widely considered one of the greatest movies of all time but i think it's also unlike kristen you had mentioned casablanca uh that one after you read danny's essay in casablanca you understand why uh it's considered a cult movie uh citizen kane i consider I've always kind of considered Citizen Kane a cult movie because you have these two factions where it's like you have big time Orson Welles fanboys and then you have like the Pauline Kael Mankiewicz defenders, apologists. And then like those people I've seen come to blows and it's like, what the calm down? It's a stupid movie, whatever. It's fine. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, Yes, it's widely considered one of the greatest movies of all time, but it's also, I think, uh, very much a cult movie and kind of fits in really well uh, with the book, um, even though Danny doesn't really write about it. I think it has a lot to do with uh, Randolph uh, Hearst, William Randolph Hearst, like trying to bury it, and then that kind of creates buzz around it. And then, and then when Pauline Kael writes her essay in the seventies, I think it was the seventies, whenever she wrote it, the Raising Cain essay, that of course like stirred the pot big time. And so then you had these like two factions, you got the Mankiewicz boys, you got the, the Wells boys and you know, us normal people are just like, Hey, cool movie. Who cares? Yeah. Right. So anyways, yeah. um, let's start. Let's see. Carmelita, when was the first time you saw Citizen Kane. I almost said Casablanca. We're talking about Citizen Kane. <laughs> When's the first time Kane. you saw Citizen Kane? <laughs> so the first time I saw, saw Citizen Kane was a humbling experience. I was eight years old. <laughs> oh. 
So the story goes, I was a really precocious little kid. I wanted to be in on whatever the adults were into. Like the biggest insult someone could say to me would have been either you're not smart enough or you're not old enough. Like I was one of those kids. I just, I wanted to do everything grownups could do. And I had heard that Citizen Kane was the greatest movie ever made. So in my, in my youthful hubris was like, oh, well, if it's the greatest movie ever made, then I have to see it. Cause I was already like a big lover of film. Even as a kid, I've watched a lot of movies. And so, you know, I'll get it right. Wrong. The first time I watched Citizen Kane as an eight-year-old kid, most of it went over my head. I didn't get it. And so it wasn't until I went back in my late teens, early 20s, and rewatched it that then it clicked. And every time I've watched it since, my appreciation and my love for it has deepened. And it's one of my favorite films now. But yeah, definitely that first time it was like I wanted to prove something and i got brought down a peg or two big old slice of humble pie okay yes. <laughs> fine i'm not old enough for this yet yeah i can't imagine showing my i mean even my 10 year old this like he can barely sit through we just watched home alone and he was like just like losing interest i'm like what not ready for citizen kane that boy is not <laughs> i don't know if he ever will be who knows i was um, hard to parent yeah. <laughs> uh, Kristen, first time for you? I don't have a specific memory, probably in my 20s when I was like, what films are good? And was just watching anything I'd heard about. But yeah, I think it comes with a lot of uh, expectation because it's so like talked up. So it's almost it almost seems impossible to like see it now for the first time and be like oh yes that is one of the best movies of all time (laughs) I feel like like it gets better like the more movies you've seen when you like for me when I go rewatch it I'm like oh I can see how this movie is like doing a lot of things that weren't done before and has been very influential like from from the point it it came out like it's done all these things that are repeated or referenced or like you know just commonplace in movies now that just weren't there at all when it first came out so it's cool to appreciate it more Definitely. now I think than when I first saw it yeah I uh the first time I saw it my friend Kevin and I when when the American Film Institute first came out with their uh 100 years 100 movies uh list citizen kane was of course the top and we were like okay we're gonna watch all 100 because we we were in high school uh and hadn't seen most of like them because it was classic cinema right so of course we started with citizen kane and we're kind of the same as like it's you know it's good but like you're saying Kristen, like we couldn't appreciate it like we can now right as people who've seen thousands of movies. Um, but also, you know, I I think I found it a little boring. But then, like, you know, we got down to Gone with the Wind and Lawrence of Arabia, and I was like, oh, Citizen Kane is not boring compared to these things <laughs> in high school, in high school. So 
Um, but number two on that list was Casablanca, I think, that when it first came out. And that was the first time I watched Casablanca. And I was like, oh, this is the best movie of all time. And it really, I mean, it's one, it is one of the greatest. Anyways, uh, so back in 2017 is when I first had the idea for this podcast. And it was going to be my friend Amy and I. We tried so many different podcasts to get off the ground. It just did not work. Uh, Amy and I would bring uh, one of our friends on, somebody here in town, uh, to watch one of the movies from the book. And uh, for the first time for them, and I would pick a double, Amy or I would pick a double feature thing. So we would like record an intro, we'd watch the double feature and then record afterwards. So it was like a whole, Mm. you know, we spent the whole night doing this and we got two episodes recorded. First one was Citizen Kane. The second one was Shot Corridor. And, uh, and then I don't know, something happened like just never got going. And then thankfully 2020, we're struck with a horrific pandemic <laughs> and uh, I get to do this for real and have met incredible people such as uh, both of you anyways. Um, so I've seen citizen Kane, I don't know, maybe half a dozen times, seven, eight times. And it does, it gets better every time uh, because every time I see it, I have seen, you know, hundreds of more movies and I'm, you know, I just, I can appreciate the technicalities of Citizen Kane each time I watch it. What was different for this time is that I watched it just from a story point and with, uh, I kind of set a goal for myself. Is there any way that I can relate with Charles Foster Kane? It was really interesting. Being, you know, a, a year sober and I kind of had this new perspective on life and, and other human beings. And I was like, I wonder if I can find something that I can love about this man. And uh, we'll, we'll get there. Let me read. I did pick something out from the essay real quick. And let me read a, a short paragraph and then we can get into our discussion. Danny says, as years pass, it becomes less important whom Cain is based on. What remains interesting is the picture story. A man chases the American dream and somewhere, somehow, his life uh, irrevocably goes wrong. Uh, He can't say that word in the movie. The money young Kane's mother got from the silver mine dictated the course of his life. He had to leave home, get an education, and then attempt to achieve power and position in addition to his wealth. But the message is simple. Success, power, riches cannot replace love and tranquility. Cain is a classic tragedy of a mammoth figure destroyed by a lust for power, by too much ambition. But because of Wells's non-linear structure, which allows us to know Cain is, de- uh, is dead at the outset and to look backward, it becomes an American tragedy. A classic figure gains our sympathy as he is reduced to common man terms. And I want to start there. Agree, disagree. Do you have sympathy, any sort of empathy towards Charles Foster Kane, Carmelita? I do. I pity him. Pity. Okay. He's not a hero. He's a tragic figure. And I think of of Citizen Kane as almost like a 20th century American fairy tale. Yeah. 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 
Absolutely. And he gets all of the things that here in America we're told you're supposed to want and strive for, and it's worth it. And he's sold on that dream of you can have it all. But there's a lot that's missing in Charles Foster Kane's life. And yeah, I feel sorry for him. He he makes a lot of mistakes. He does a lot of rotten things to the people in his life. But I think at his core, it's like there's this wound, this wounding from his childhood, this, this hole he's trying to fill with power and money and people and statues and antiques and building Xanadu and and he never quite fills it and at the end it's like he's longing for that thing that you know you can't buy your way out of the human condition right you know right uh Kristen do you feel uh any sort of uh positive feelings for this man I don't know it's like it's not from his perspective like I feel like we're asked to pity him but we don't like really empathize with him or like really because we're we're aligned with the reporter right the audience is aligned with the reporter who's just like going around interviewing people and trying to figure out who this man was so we don't see it from Kane's perspective really and I don't think we have empathy for him in that way and it's at this time when I was watching it I was struck by how like they kind of gloss over the fact that his first wife and child were killed in a car accident I was like whoa that seems like it probably affected him a lot more than this movie is giving (laughs) the space for him to like feel or like deal with that so it is like we are like removed from him and like you say Carmelita like we pity him but I don't think we really empathize with him what here's here's how this was sort of my in I found when I was watching it this time to um, somehow relate to this guy is that he was ripped from his childhood he was taken away right and that's the whole point of the movie he wants to get back to that happy place rosebud right duh but all of this was essentially forced on him yes he made choices he made a lot of very bad choices lots of poor choices uh but he has that line he says if i hadn't been very rich i might have been uh was i might have been a a good man a a good man yeah a great man a great man and so like right there it kind of shows the core of the man's heart and that there's some sort of good in there because when when we're sitting in the interviews with uh joe cotton and with um uh what's her what's her name dorothy commagore they also sort of pity the man but they also see pity sounds like such a to me like a sort of a carry some sort of negative connotation so yes i think we all pity him and these characters pity him but they're the characters that actually 
knew him really well, and they were able to see glimpses of goodness within him, but it was just so shrouded uh, in these layers upon layers upon layers, and the layers just, you know, got more and more as the years went on and sort of, you know, obviously buried that goodness within him. And so in that way, uh, throughout the whole movie, I kind of had that in my head. And so as he's yelling at people and being the biggest asshole, and uh, we, you know, um, and I also like how the movie just, it doesn't tell us this is how you should feel about this man. Just kind of, right, because of the interviews, it shows us uh, different perspectives. and, And the movie says, here's this man take him or leave him think of think of him however you want and i think for the most part i can't speak for everybody i think for the most part most people are probably like yeah this guy he's an asshole especially in today's climate when you watch this how much stuff is so relative is quite scary um and so when i think about there's goodness within this this guy it kind of i don't know if this is good or bad kind of helps me think about these rich and powerful monsters that are out there and I'm like there's gotta be good in there somewhere because I choose to believe we're all born inherently good as opposed to inherently evil I used to think we're all born inherently evil and we had to learn to be good (laughs) that's I think that's a very scary dangerous way of thinking um, and so obviously Charles Foster Kane, born a good kid. He's out building a snowman, going down the, you know, on his sled. And then he's ripped away from his childhood and sort of this new life is forced upon him. And he has to build up these layers to protect himself. And that it just gets thicker and thicker and thicker. And he gets lost in there somehow. And yada, yada, yada. So I like to think actual human beings are like that too. But it's so much easier to hate you know, these rich and powerful people that are, you know, the real people. I, I think it's easier to hate them because it's, we just see, right. What, what is put out there in front of us. We're like, Oh God, what a piece of shit this person is. And that's all we want to see. So anyways, I'm going to stop talking. Um, (laughs) No, there's so much, I mean, there's so much good in there to dig into. It's like, there's a line when they, when they get done watching the newsreel at the beginning, and, and they're getting the assignment to find out what is Rosebud. And the guy says, you know, it's not enough to know or say what the man did. It's who he was. And we can't know that really. Charles Foster Kane is the most recognizable, famous, infamous man in the world and people knew a lot of things about him and some of the people closest to him got little glimpses, but nobody, not a one of them knew what Rosebud was because no one, he never let anyone get down to that core. Like no one got down that deep with him. And I'm, I'm of the mind We're we're born with that, that whole spectrum of possibility to do hurtful things to do good things. Mm. We have all of that within us. Every single one of us is capable of that full range of, (laughs) of, you know, of what humans do to each other or for each other and to themselves. Um, But I think, you know, with him, it's like, 
I, this time I really picked up on the cycles in his life. When, when we have this scene where it flashes back to when Thatcher first comes to collect little Charlie from his parents and his mother's very stern and very authoritative and she's being very matter of fact about, yes, we're signing over the guardianship. You're taking him. I already packed his bag a week ago. And there's, there's, it's like, oh, wow. Like she's seems really detached from letting her one and only child go. Mm-hmm. But then at the end of that sequence, when the, the father says like, you know, that he could use a spanking or a tanning or whatever he says about wanting to physically discipline Charles. The mother says, well, that's what you think. He's getting as far away from you. We're sending him as far away from you. So you can tell that there's, she loves her son and this is the way she's showing him love, giving him this incredible opportunity, which in capitalist America is like, oh, wow, the godsend, you get to go and be rich and hobnob and network with important people and you're going to go straight to the top um but the thing that doesn't happen for him is he never learns how to demonstrate love he never really learns how to receive and like feel love from other people and you see the cycle with his friendships you see the cycle with his first wife emily you really see the cycle with susan it's like Susan wants to sing. She didn't want to be an opera singer. She didn't want an opera house. That's how he shows love. Cause that's how his mother showed him love. She gave him the opportunity of upward mobility against like, she never asked him if he wanted to go to this guardianship and become a rich kid. Right. Um, and he does that for Susan. It's like, that's the only way he knows how to show love and he's all closed off and buying things is his way but people don't feel that, you know? So it's right. it's really interesting to watch it in terms of the cycles in his life. Kristen, any thoughts, responses to that? No. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I, I think it's, a, it, it's very much a nature versus nurture situation here, right? Um, and I think you're right. You know, it's... You always... Because it happens at the beginning... And it's such um, I mean, it's a very important scene. Obviously, it's the uh, it sets things in motion. But that passing line of dad saying he's going to whoop him and mom says, no, we're sending him away to protect him. And so you forget about that. He actually does. Yes, he has a loving mother. So um, now okay, is here's a question. Is there a villain in this story i mean i guess he is the villain especially with susan yeah that's where it's like he's not good with his his wives right um yeah no he's his own worst enemy i think uh i mean for me the villain is capitalism But that, yeah, you know, yeah. I have my leanings, my own personal right. <laughs> political it leanings. Is, <laughs> it is really hard. And again, uh, it's hard uh, not 
or it's hard to watch this and not relate it to like current events. Um, and I think that's one of the special things about this movie is that it will always, or sad things, it will always be relevant. It has always yes. been relevant, right? Um, so that's the genius of the script. Uh, so Herman J. Mankiewicz and, and Orson Welles, well done. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, if y- you could say that... Uh, who's who's the dude that... Who was his caretaker? Thatcher? Thatcher. Is... I mean, if... I think he's the villain, honestly, because uh, he, he started it all. <laughs> uh, just w- if I can boil it down as simple as possible in my head, I think Thatcher's the villain. But then as life progresses, uh, like I was saying, I think Charles builds this. He keeps this safe space, right? His childhood that he always he never forgets. And he keeps this safe space, but as each year progresses and more and more stuff happens to him and, and more he gets more successful, he builds these layers and he becomes this unwieldy onion full of thousands of layers where you like the core isn't even you can't even get to the core if you try to pierce try to pierce it, right? And I think that's what is his wives tried to do. Uh, I mean, and even listen, you know, being a father, like that's the most, like when I think about my boys, like I'll get super emotional and weepy, just like, you know, that's the way to any human being's heart or like somebody's pet or your partner or whatever. Like, um, but I think it was this self-defensive mechanism that Charles Foster Kane used as he got older to protect himself, but then he just sort of lost control of it. And that's really sad to me. And mm-hmm. as I was watching it this time, I that was on the front of my mind the entire time thinking, oh, man, this guy, he just, he knows better, but he doesn't know any better because he's he's lost his way. Right. And it's you could say like it's a greed thing, but I think that's just one of the layers. Um, uh, you know, I want to go back to Kristen. You were talking about they just gloss over the fact that his first <laughs> wife and son are killed. They mention it in the newsreel mm-hmm, up top, mm-hmm. which I, I really like that device, although, you know, because that was like a, a, a nice summation. But then they the whole movie is that anyways. So it's like, what's the point? What was the point of all that? But yeah, like, I don't even remember this time. Is it even in the movie proper outside of that newsreel? Like, does does somebody even mention it? I mean, it gets mentioned again, but it's not one of the flashbacks. There's no flashback to, you know, him hearing the news or going to a funeral or nothing like that it gets mentioned very briefly again but no and no one's even like you would think even maybe in like susan's interview she would be like oh yeah and then his son died or whatever and and he was this way but she doesn't even mention it i think it's like someone random who mentions it yeah it's so i think 
yeah Go ahead, just a just a glaring omission i felt this on this watch yeah absolutely i think um but i think it makes sense though because he's so closed off mm -hmm. and he's he always he's always projecting this i'm forward thinking i'm thinking about the future i'm going to be a politician and make changes towards the future he projects this future forward thinking even though deep inside he's holding on to this little core of his past but i could totally see um you know him maybe privately having feelings but no one else seeing him grieve whatever mm -hmm. right you know yeah I mean, yeah it's just like as xanadu grows you know like when uh what what's the gosh dang it i'm so bad susan when those scenes of susan doing the puzzles right first she's at this table but then she's by the the fireplace that you could like literally just chop down a tree and put the whole tree in there and just burn the it tree. Looks like hell, it looks like the pits of hell yeah <laughs> yeah i love the xanadu set and all of like amazing it's so eerie and the echoing of voices that tells you just how distant the people in the room are right and how so empty the room is like obviously that that sort of cavernous feeling as the as xanadu grows i mean it's obviously representational of of charles foster kane and everything but as the castle grows as his property grows gets bigger and bigger his safe space stays the same right wherever that may be but it starts to look smaller because everything else is growing around it. Mm -hmm. And like, it, you know, it gets so small that we, we would have no idea where that safe space, like, would it be up in his uh, office or bedroom, the, you know, that he trashes, like, is it somewhere in there? Is it just laying in bed, whatever. Um, and again, like, that's so sad to me because Again, this, you know, he's got, um, uh, oh, what's Everett Sloan's character, uh, Bernstein. Mm -hmm. I think Bernstein, um, although funny, Everett Sloan's so good in this. Um, although funny, I think he might be also, in my mind, sort of a villain, a villainous character because it's so much hero worship with him. He's a yes man. And I cannot stand like fanboys or people fawning over rock stars or whatever it is. Like it just, it's so, it, it's just, it's so repulsive to me. And so like this guy, especially on this watch, I'm just like, Oh God, you are. So I had zero empathy for him. And here I am like caring about the monster <laughs> on screen. I'm like, Oh, this little weasel, he's shit. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. I kind of like Bernstein just because what you see is what you get. He's not hiding that. Yeah. True. He's not hiding it. It there's an interesting contrast with Leland who's like the privileged aristocrat idealist. You know, the elitist left <laughs> Leland and Leland you get that that disappointment he he starts to feel the disillusionment because Charles Foster Kane is not the hero he wanted him to be. And and I think for Bernstein, Bernstein sees Charles Foster Kane 
just kind of for what he is. Right. And he's a yes man. He's willing to go along. And even though Kane's politics are murky, even though he's a kind of wishy-washy, even though he talks about sticking up for the little guy as he's increasingly losing touch with, with. the normal average working person. It's like, but Bernstein sees him for that. and isn't, it's just kind of like, well, this is the man and this is the job. And he's, he's not hiding it. He's not ashamed of it. He's just kind of whatever. Yeah. He's and Leland. Leland is ashamed. Right. Yeah. True. Yeah. Yeah. Bernstein like knows he's a leech. Mm -hmm. Um, and to me, that's an enabler and enablers yeah. are the ultimate it's, yeah, it's gross. evil to me is, is real gross. But yeah, that's true. Like he's well aware he's a leech and it's, uh, I don't know if he's, he doesn't really seem overly proud of it. He's just accepting, just like you were saying, as he's accepting of Charlie, he's accepting of, yeah, this is my role. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, uh, is Bernstein a good guy, bad guy, Kristen? A guy? <laughs> yeah, I agree. He's likable because he's so straightforward and he knows who he, who he is, what his role is, who who the money man is. <laughs> yeah, I like him. I mean, <laughs> yeah. In a, in a movie where everyone is like, just like not not showing themselves. It's it's refreshing to have like the Bernstein character there. Right. Do you uh so let's talk about Leland for a second, played by Joseph Cotton. Um I think uh Joseph Cotton's vocal affectation mm. is a lot of the care like his natural just the way he talks, right? How, whatever, wherever the hell he's from. Um, just the way he talks is so much that character. Um but and, and it's interesting. So, like, think about seeing this for the first time back in 1941, 42. Uh, this is these are radio actors, right? This is everyone's like first movie, a lot of people's first movie. And so, like, nobody has these preconceived notions of who these actors are. So I think that's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, but here we are uh, 80 years later. And so we are not afforded that um, that chance. So uh, although I this is probably the first time I saw Joseph Cotton when I watched this back in the mid 90s, obviously, it's the first time I saw Joseph Cotton. So I, I didn't know who the hell this guy was. Yeah, but, I think it comes back around again. Like there was probably a period of time where these actors were very famous. And then now we're like so far removed that probably a lot of people watching this movie for the first time aren't going to know Wouldn't who know. Interesting. Joseph Cotton is. That's yeah. a good point. So um, I really, really like the character of Leland. And I think if there were, uh, I don't even know if there's a, a hero. I see. I don't think there's a, a villain and really a, a hero per se of this movie, even though Charles Foster Kane could be the obvious choice for villain. I don't think in, in my mind he is. But if we're saying there is a villain, whoever it is, I think Leland is the hero because he at least sticks to his convictions. Um, he doesn't kowtow to his friend, his college buddy. Did they go to college together? 
Are we yes. to assume that? Okay. One of them, one of the colleges. One of the, right, exactly. Cain got kicked out of a bunch of them. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, and I, I love the interview sequence with Joseph Cotton with the, with the heavy makeup. He's so funny with the cigar. I, um, I, I kind of want that to be like my Halloween costume. <laughs> this old yeah, Joseph Cotton. Because he has like an ascot and a robe. That's uh, oh, yeah. fingers crossed. Those are my final <laughs> and just days. Ask everybody. Ask everybody you see if they have a cigar. Cigar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I, I, he's he's my favorite character, uh, and I just, you know, the the review of the opera. He's not. He doesn't. You know, like I said, kowtow to his friend and just uh, write some bullshit thing that said oh yeah it's fine it's good um, but he did get drunk he did get drunk and i've always kind of read that as he wanted to write the review that was his honest opinion and frankly it was the honest opinion of most of the people in the opera house right and he was going to have the balls to say it and he had to get drunk though because he knew it was going to hurt his friend and there's like this you know and see and now now e even as an alcoholic speaking here I am like, man, that guy really, Leland really loved Charlie. Like, he he loved him so much that he didn't want to hurt his friend. And the only way he could deal with that sort of inner battle is to get drunk. And I'm like, to yes, get drunk. I get that. Yeah. I get, yes, Same. I understand that. <laughs> right, yeah, you get it too, right. I'm having so many feelings right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Get so, Blotto. It, yeah, it so much easier than to actually have to fucking deal with them. Oh, damn. Yeah. I know. Uh, so, <laughs> so I, I don't know. I really, really love Leland in this movie. Carmelita, do you, you like him? I mean, I how do. can you not? I do. I, I really, I think both Leland and Bernstein are, are, they've kind of got some of those lovable, lovable quality. And there's a complexity, right? That's, I think what makes this film so enduring sure. is that complexity. And it's like Leland is lovable, but he's also, you know, he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He and Charles Foster Kane, like Kane does not see himself as being in the same class as Leland. Because Kane always saw himself as the kid with nothing. And it's, and Leland, even though Leland is flat broke because his aristocratic family spent all the money, he will always be in that upper echelon, higher class. Right. And so there's, there's all the complexity of that, you know, that Leland, I think really does have all that idealism and want change, but he also is a person who benefits from privilege. Do you suspect some sort of competition between the two characters? I don't know. Because Charles is so, you know, I mean, obviously he's, again, I realize we're talking about just movie characters here, but let's mm -hmm. pretend they're real. He's so charismatic, right? That's that's what yeah. gets him so far in life. You know, it's what gets a lot of people very far in life. And so... It's hard, and all these layers that he's built up, it's hard to read what's really going on here 
Uh, we know when he's angry. That's about yeah. the only emotion he shows, right? Because <laughs> uh, even when the marching band comes in and the, the girls dancing and at the newspaper oh, early, early on, great scene. Um, I, I, I still can't even tell. Is Charles Foster Kane putting on some sort of front here? Um, and so because of that, it's hard to know. Does he uh, Is he envious at all? of Leland and his sort of natural wealth. Um, does he see him as a smarter person, a better writer, that sort of thing. Um, and I, you know, I don't think Leland cares about any of that, but I, I, I've always wondered, does Charles see himself in competition with Leland somehow? Kristen, do you have any thoughts on that? I don't think so. I don't, it seems like they're supposed to be buddies, but then I also feel like they're not close. <laughs> Just like, like he should know more about him or something. Like when he's interviewed, I don't know. It's it's a weird. It it makes me wonder. Like, is this just what like? 1930s college buddy relationships were like or I don't know or is it just because they're like upper class I don't know they don't seem like emotionally close and I feel like there is like the opportunity like like uh so a, a lot of people leave Charles Foster Kane and I just think there's like the most opportunity for him to maybe build a close relationship is maybe with Leland or yeah, probably with Leland because they're like the same age. I don't know. It just seems like I want them to, to have a real relationship and they're just like, they don't seem to actually be close. It's, it's interesting. Like I, I think maybe not so much a competition. I see there's that conflict that was it that's within Kane. He resents people with money. He resents yeah. people of the ruling class. He resents people like he hates Thatcher. He goes to every, all these great lengths to write scathing, damaging pieces about the bank and Thatcher's business, even though he has shares in it. Like he just so resents the money men when he writes criticisms in his paper about the president who is his wife's uncle like he resents authority he resents the upper class but he's friends with Leland they came up together in school but I wonder if there isn't that part of him that resents where Leland comes from so there's always this little bit of like <sighs> there's always this divide you know, you know, I I think th that was another way that I really uh, related to Charles Foster Kane because he resents sort of that upper class coming from the Midwest, uh, you know, lower class Midwest growing up. And now, you know, I'm mid middle class Midwest. Uh, I, and I look at, you know, friends that live on the, the West Coast. I look at friends that live on the East Coast and the cost of living is higher uh, 
anywhere besides where I am. And so <laughs> for most of my life, I resented people that lived in Washington, Oregon, California, Arizona, New York, Maine, Connecticut, whatever, Florida. Um, actually, I pity people that live in Florida. Fuck Florida. Uh, <clears throat> no offense to any Florida listeners, but actually, yes, offense. Uh, sorry, not sorry. So, so yeah, right, exactly. Um, and so for most of my life, I resented people that lived out there because I knew you had to make more money than I did to be able to afford to live out there. And I still, I still dream of living in New York city. Maybe someday I will, who knows? Uh, we, my wife and I, not I, we maybe will live in New York city <laughs> or maybe she'll live here and I'll live there and we'll figure something out. Uh, and so it wasn't until my brother and so I knew a lot of people who like, uh, my age, grew up on like long island and then now they live in hell's kitchen in manhattan and it's like let's be honest like you have some sort of east coast money that allowed you to at least get started like that right uh but then my brother moved out there about a decade ago and he came from the same exact place i did and like he worked himself up to that point and i realized like you know, if we're talking Los Angeles, almost nobody who lives in Los Angeles was actually born in Los Angeles. Most people move to Los Angeles, so they've had to work themselves up to wherever they are. Um, and But a lot of New York people that I know, like, just they grew up, you know, uh, the next town over. And so they could move to the city. Or, and so in that way... Because he does, I can't even remember what, what he says. Did I write it down? I said, no. Um, he says a, a line of dialogue where I was just like, mm, right there, on the nose, I get it. And uh, so that was another sort of in that, again, you know, I've seen this, what, seven, eight times that I've never actually paid attention to that. And this time around, I was like, I, I kind of like Charles Foster Kane. I mean, I went, we went to see Tar a few weeks ago and I was like I love Lydia Tarr and spoiler she's a real monster in the movie so maybe that's me maybe <laughs> I should need to talk to somebody about this anyways <laughs> well I mean let's say this part of what makes Charles Foster Kane so magnetic is that it's Orson Welles playing him yeah, yes exactly imagine if there was a different actor playing Kane, he might not be as charming and engaging to watch. So I think that that definitely for me is part of it. But I think also, you know, it's he represents this American ideal and the original the title, I think, of the first draft of the screenplay was American. That was like the original title, like he represents all that we as Americans are supposed to strive for, you know? Um, so, you know, our society eats up the story of the person who comes from nothing or humble beginnings and pulls themselves up by the bootstraps or makes the best of their opportunities. 
and goes straight to the top. Like we live for that shit yeah. here in the United States. <laughs> How often that actually happens is another story. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it really is a pipe dream because even if you look at Citizen Kane, he wasn't born. Charles Foster Kane wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth, Mm-mm. but he was given that silver spoon. He was given. Yes. Right. And so he, from age six, seven, eight, that silver spoon went into his mouth and never left until the day he died. Yeah. Well, and there's a great there's a great line in the new in that opening newsreel when it's talking about Xanadu. And if I think about Xanadu as this as being emblematic of Kane's life, when it's talking about the process of building Xanadu and it says the cost, no man can say. <laughs> and that's true, like money wise. You look at the place, it's like, that was a chunk of change. I don't know how much, but this costs a pile of pennies. And it's the kind of money I'll never see in my lifetime. But there's a double meaning here too. The human cost. Like in order for his papers to be successful, he had to play both sides. Flip-flop never hang on to one conviction too hard because you know it's really about making this sensational paper that people will buy mm-hmm. uh, we haven't even talked about the media and how closely <laughs> our current media situation resembles the yellow journalism of that era and now that's just our news 24 hours a day but i digress <laughs> um you know you also get like he all of the friendships lost and then his political career. And it's like, he, it's just over and over and over again. Yes. He's living this dream, all this money and all this wealth and influence. And he's just losing left and right at the same time. The more we talk about him, the more I hate the man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I think you're right. The the ultimate evil is capitalism media. Here's I'm just something I, I didn't read. I didn't notice uh, the previous times I watched this. When he goes over to te- uh, to the paper for the first time, and the the editor comes out and he's like, "Oh, you know, we're here. You know, have what eight hours a day or whatever." And he's like, "Oh no, we're gonna live here." Uh, news happens 24 hours a day, and so we will be here 24 hours a day. So this is like decades before the 24-hour news cycle that starts in the 80s, right? So mm-hmm. that's that uh, that wording of the dialogue is really interesting. Um, again, like these guys, Mankiewicz and Wells, were so far ahead. It seemed like, or, or fuck, maybe they were just tapped in. Like I said, you know, I think this will be ever relevant, evergreen, as they say, right? Um, and so maybe it's, it was just the same shit back in the 40s. It's depressing. <laughs> <laughs> the world keeps turning, my friend. Uh, real quick, thoughts on Mank. Have uh, both of you seen Mank? I have, I have not, not seen it. Not seen oh, you, neither of you. Okay, interesting. Mm-mm. Okay, I know a lot of people didn't like it. I thought it was fine. Never mind. We won't. I'll get around it. to it. Um, what else? I think. Oh, my last note, real quick. Just a random thing. Can somebody tell me 
that goddamn cockatoo transition <laughs> just like out of nowhere. That's the one because Carmelita, I'm with you. I think it's a masterpiece and it's almost a perfect movie. But that cockatoo is and it's so loud. And I remember when we were watching this, uh, it was my me, my friend Amy and my friend Steve who had never seen it before. The cockatoo comes on and and he, we're all on the couch together and he jumps. Holy yeah. shit. What was that? Like what? Why? That's so stupid. It's startling. It's startling. I mean, but if that's the effect you want to go for, because right after that is when we see Kane tear up the room. Right. Like it, it's like, ah, cockatoo. And then Kane, like he like breaks. Yeah, it's an emotional cockatoo. It's an emotional cockatoo. <laughs> it sure is a, an emotional cockatoo. But I get, I get what you're saying. Um, okay, so I've, I've spent most of my time talking about sort of the story and the emotional aspect of the movie. I know, uh, you know, this is a marvel of cinematic technicalities. Do we want to talk about any of that stuff? Yeah, man. All right, go, Kristen. You're up. Oh, geez. Tag, you're... There's just, I mean, there's just so much. the The very beginning is like super moody and expressionist, and I always forget that. I don't know. It's like, it's yeah, it's amazing. Extreme expressionism. <laughs> but with, there's like a woman. He's like looking at the ball, the snow globe. And there's like a nurse comes into the room mm -hmm. and she's like in the snow globe, like that framing it. lens, right? Yeah, super amazing. Um, I don't know. Yeah, the <laughs> way the movie kicks off, because I mean, we get the newsreel, right? And then we. Oh, yeah, well, so no, it goes it from. Yeah, it goes from the, the expressionist. Expressionist oh, to the death reel. scene to the newsreel. News okay. so, so it's like these two, like, very formalist chunks that yes. it just like okay. starts you with so yeah like. the movie starts like almost this um almost a horror movie feel of the time a because, gothic quality right, to it like this gothic jungle sort of thing because we get the shots of the monkeys like the cages have rotted open but the monkeys haven't run away and like like the the wilted plants and you know, the broken down signs and fences and stuff. And then in the background, we see this gigantic looming Gothic castle. And then we get inside it. You know, I, I wish I could remember exactly what I was thinking when I saw this for the first time, uh, because I know I came into it with preconceived notions, knowing that, oh, this is the greatest movie of all time. And it's about this like newspaper tycoon and like his his rise and his fall. And that's what I knew about it. But then it opens like this. And I was like, Whoa. What is this movie? I wouldn't be surprised if I thought we were watching the wrong movie, honestly. No, it's uh, beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so There's great... like... No, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, you're fine. There's like the use of light in this film, the contrast of light and shadow, and they use low light in so many scenes and then like naturalistic light. It's like the only light in the room is the one lamp in a corner and the light coming through a window. So there's all these beautiful shadows and shafts of light and someone talking, but their face is darkened. Right. 
and someone else in the frame is illuminated. All of those low shots where you can see the ceiling in a room, which is not something like when you watch old movies, it's very rare that you see the ceiling in a room. Right. We get that that point of view, that perspective, which is so unique. All the dissolves. I love the dissolves in this film. Very old school feeling. Oh, it's just, it's gorgeous. And it it gives it that dreamy fairy tale quality. Um, you have all those great shots where they they use the optical printer so that they could like you have these shots that go up and up and up like in the opera house yeah where it's like it comes from the stage and you go up through the rafters and you keep going higher and higher and higher until you get to the the lighting guys who are commenting on the performance down below like it's just (laughs) all of the little details that with the sound the visual storytelling of this is just incredible. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's sort of the, what this is known for. Right. And that's what a lot of people talk about. That's why I kind of came into it. All right. This time around, I'm not, you know, I know, you know, the shot about the, you know, the table coming apart and then coming together and the sign when we're going in to talk to, to, uh, to Vera, what the hell's her name? Susan Alexander Vera. Uh, you know, that going through the sign and through the through the skylight windows and everything. Um, yeah, Greg Tolan, the cine- cinematographer, of course, um, just created all sorts of shit for this. And, you know, this is another one of those movies that uh, you watch it and then you see where everybody else got these ideas and where, you know, these you know, Toland always shooting at an upwards angle. So everybody looks bigger and like the, you know, the, the newspaper office set, you know, with the lowered ceilings. Yeah. So when, you know, Orson walks in, his head is almost scraping the ceiling, but so it makes him look giant and all that stuff. Um, I mean, it, it really is. It's, it's a technical Marvel for, uh, for nothing else. Like it's fun just to watch. I remember just sort of, tuning out for the story one of these last times i watched it and just sort of paid attention to uh, how the camera was shooting the lighting i was thinking today this isn't uh, is this a noir could it be considered a noir i think it has a lot of the elements right we were talking in maltese falcon about like the detective story and trying to figure out what's going on so it has that element and it has the the parts out of order kind of his life isn't shown chronologically and then of course the lighting so it definitely has a lot of there's a mystery a mystery to solve yeah 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 i was thinking that this time you know, because we're all kind of we're recording this in November. I don't think this is coming out till December. Um, so I kind of had noir on the brain, anyways. I was like, "Gosh, this really has a heavy noir quality, especially with the with the shadows, like lots of faces covered, and uh, it's very interesting." Um, Carmelita, yeah. oh, no, Kristen, go ahead. Oh, it's just it overall has this really interesting mix of like 
technical things that can only really be done in camera, but yeah. paired with things that are very theatrical, like the deep focus is kind of sort of replicating like what it would be like to look at a watch a play, yep. even yeah. though even though it is directing your attention, you know, to specific things by what's in the frame and then kind of the overlapping dialogue and the importance of sound. I, I think of that as a more theatrical thing. But but then like we just talked about all of these other like film specific things. So it's just really interesting how it, it uses all of the techniques kind of to to make it to to show you what film can be but not but but still clearly being influenced by these theatrical elements right yeah yeah because he you know he's his company is a bunch of radio guys and theater guys from new york right so it does have that very theatrical feeling which i dig um and a lot of times when you watch a movie um that maybe has been adapted from the stage and it uses a lot of the same actors from the original stage uh play or musical it does not translate well right and i understand citizen kane is a movie and only was ever a movie um but it feels like it could have been adapted from the stage using the same actors they used for the stage but they did it right does that make any sense sound like a yeah. big ramble yeah no, I get what you're saying. Uh, Carmelita, final thoughts on Citizen Kane. Oh, I I feel like this is one of those movies everyone should see and experience. I'm I'm not going to say it's the greatest film ever made. I don't I don't know that that a statement like that helps anybody, and right. it's so subjective. Like, but I do think it's an in, it's a story that endures. It's a amazing cast. It's this visual feast. I don't get sick of watching this movie. I just love it so much. And like we talked and talked and talked about so many things. And if we really just let ourselves go, we could talk about this for hours. I mean, we didn't even talk about Rosebud. (laughs) What's Rosebud? (laughs) There's so much... There's just so much going on in this film and there's so many ways to think about it and digest it and process it and feel. And it's just, that's, that's why we're talking about it. You know, that's why it still matters. And I'm sure some listeners are like, that's it. That's all you're going to talk about. You know, I try to keep the episodes (laughs) around the 90 minute mark. And like you're saying, Carmelita, there is so much in this movie, you could do a six hour, you know, projection booth style episode on this. And I'm sure people have uh, because it is that that good. I'm with you. I think, you know, I, I sort of recently had this epiphany about ranking movies or art and like star ratings and all that stuff. And and I stopped doing that and, you know, sort of had a midlife crisis moment uh, <laughs> when it comes to that stuff. And so I'm with you. Like, uh, I would never say this is the greatest movie of all time. It's one of my favorites for sure. Uh, but this is one of the most influential movies of all time. 
most definitely. So, uh, Kristen, final thoughts on Citizen Kane? Yeah. Uh, I want to mention that this movie is very funny and delightful. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's a lot throughout to, like, kind of delight. I mean, in that newsreel scene, there's, like, a series of things like you see him like hanging out with Hitler and it's like talking about how he would later denounce people there's a scene where he's like starting construction or something oh, he's just like it. ceremoniously breaking ground and he like gets cement all over himself <laughs> or something and he's like, in the war in yeah in there, Europe. he's declaring in 1941 there will be no war in Europe <laughs> Um, yeah, and then there's, you know, that we talked briefly about that song and dance scene, which I find very delightful. And then the White Stripes, like, made that song that was influenced by that. So I always get the the Charles Foster Kane song stuck in my head. <laughs> I love the song. Um, yeah, it's so great. And then let's see. And then, like, like, some of the technical things are delightful, too. Like, there's the scene where... He's like looking at the photo of the Chronicle staff and then he's like, oh, I got to get these guys on my staff. And it just like zooms into the photo and and becomes the scene where they're like all sitting there. It's like, oh, that's fun. That was a fun technical thing. So there's just like a lot throughout to like really delight um let's see what else do i have here though the the breakfast scene with his wife his first wife is so iconic where they're just like getting further and further (laughs) apart right uh and and physically further across the table from each other and then yeah the the mansion scenes at xanadu where they're just like yelling at each other in this like echoey (laughs) chamber and he's like, what are you doing? And she's like, what? And she's like, huh? What? Like, I can't hear you. Like, you're literally feet and feet away from me. Anyway, that's always fun. And then my last thing, I'll just say Thatcher's arc as an archivist, Thatcher's archive is terrifying. And, <laughs> and it's it's like the opposite of like archivists now are like, like kind of reckoning with like, oh, archives are like part of this institution that people are like kind of scared to come to and we should like make it as accessible and like welcoming as possible. Thatcher's archive is just like a a cement (laughs) or marble maybe room with like a table, uh, like really buttoned up lady who's like mad that he's like looking at (laughs) the archives and I'm like, no, everything about this scene is wrong. as far as welcoming people to the archive and like being glad that they're like looking at the documents (laughs) there's like a single light coming from the ceiling yeah anyway yeah come into come into my blockade and and look at these letters she's like she's like mad she's like you have to leave by 4 30 it's 4 30 (laughs) why are you still here (laughs) anyway Um, i like that my final note is uh, this is very serious. We need to get very serious when we're talking about this. Okay. Um, in the newspaper office, this is an office where uh, people are writing on paper. Paper is in abundance in this space. Newspaper, kind of the, you know, thin uh, ink 
lots of paper in this place. And their source of light comes from <laughs> like fire coming out of a tube in the wall. Yes. It's a gas. <laughs> it was a different time. <laughs> yes. I remember watching this uh, when we were doing it for the original podcast. And uh, Steve was like, what are they doing? And so every time I watch it now, pass it, I'm just like, Oh my god, this is so nerve-wracking. Yeah, it's just like an open fucking flame in a newspaper. I, I was just thinking about when I watched it this time about the smell cuz I recently went to Nevada City and there it's like a historical town and all of their street lights are gas gas powered and I didn't mm. realize that. I was like standing outside of the theater and I was like, "Why does it smell like gas everywhere?" And then I realized it was because I was standing next to a street light. <laughs> Which was gas powered because wow. I don't know it's quaint or something. But then it was like if you're in a room, like I was outside and I can smell no, it. People used to live like that, <laughs> right? Exactly. Breathing it all in. Mm. <laughs> we were tougher back then, apparently. I guess just. I don't think we were breathing in gas. I mean, we only lived, <laughs> right, forty, fifty years, but. Oh, but how they lived. But how they lived. <laughs> Smoking yeah. indoors. Oh, just man. the best i love it i miss it i i smoked in my first apartment <laughs> huge mistake Oof. just everything fucking stunk never try to clean the wall oh because the one spot you clean then you realize how much nicotine stain is on the wall and now you everywhere. have to clean every everywhere wall. yeah the, the first the first uh house real word uh, I'm I'm leaving Citizen Kane here. Just go with me, okay? We're going down this 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 trail here. <laughs> when we were shopping for our first house, uh, 10, 11 years eleven years ago, uh, one of the first houses our realtor took us to. This guy had just died a couple days before. Died in his rocking chair in his living room. And we walked in, and I was like, oh, and it smelled like, um old cigarettes which mm -hmm. reminded me of my the house i grew up in so it was it was a nostalgic i was like yes, you were like coming it. home right exactly i was like oh this smells so good but so we went to the living room up on the ceiling where obviously this is where his chair was where he always sat and smoked like a fucking circle just <laughs> golden yellow pea color mm -hmm. like so dark yellow it was like oh next no i don't even want to come like try to clean that that is horrific we're gonna have to fumigate the whole place <laughs> anyways citizen kane it's, it's a good movie kane. if you ever seen it <laughs> little movie little movie called citizen kane anyways uh let's move on to the second portion of i don't know let me stretch my ears here of our program where we are going to um offer up some pairing recommendations with citizen kane which obviously needs pairing recommendations because it's not quite good enough you need another movie to you know make it good maybe i just love watching double features oh god me too i mean this it's i i just like the challenge you know when what Lindsay does just like constantly obviously her brain is constantly like this Rolodex of, of movies. She's like, oh, 
It's almost like a slot machine. I can imagine Lindsay's <laughs> brain as a slot machine. You pull the, the lever ching, down. Ching. It's like, ding, 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 ding. And you get these two movies. And you're like, oh, obviously that's going to work. And it's the most random shit in the world. She's the best. Everyone should listen to Schlock and all. It's true. True story. Um. All right. Let's get into this. Carmelita, let's hear your first pairing recommendation with Citizen Kane. So first up. I kind of, I always like to go with the theme. I love a theme. And in my pairings, I was thinking about identity and loneliness and kind of people reckoning with the past. So my first pairing recommendation is Mr. Arcaden from 1955, AKA the Confidential Report or Confidential Report, sorry. Written and directed by Orson Welles. So another Orson Welles based on original radio scripts by him and Ernest Borneman. And it's now this is not an American film. This film is very Europe. And, and the titular Mr. Arcaden played by Orson Welles is another big larger than life character. But this is a guy who wants to bury the past Hmm. and his totem is is something that's in his life that speaks to the future Hmm. and it's this investigation into who was mr arcaden before he was the big powerful man that he is and it's like jet set all over europe and they go to mexico and Italy and Spain, and they're all over the place trying to track down Mr. Arcaden's past. Mm. And he supposedly supporting those efforts, but maybe he has another agenda. Very cool film. It's, I also like the contrast of this is a film where Wells did not have complete and unlimited control because he lost the edit on this one. And so there was like a bunch of different versions and Orson Welles was not pleased. It was like a disaster for him. I watched Criterion Channel has the Corinth version, which I think Peter Bogdanovich is the one that discovered the Corinth version in the 60s. And it was at that time, like the closest to what Wells had envisioned. Okay, cool. Um, But Criterion has since, I think, done another cut, which they're saying is that one is Is. really. Yeah, I think I watched the the most complete, like the most footage version. So I don't know if it's like any closer to his vision, but. Yeah, and they're not like that much long. Like, it's like six minutes. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. I've watched I've watched the Corinth version. But it's it's a great film. It's fun. A lot of those Wellianisms. <laughs> like, like a lot that. of his his style you can see is present there. And again, another story about people who trying to reconcile with who they are and where they've been sure, and the impact on the people around them. Very cool flick. Yeah. So this was on my possible list and it has 
It has a lot of like very cool camera angles, like low angles, I would say like comic book style almost. And then the other thing I liked about it, which also kind of reminded me of the other side of the wind is like, there's these party scenes with this like roving camera and it's like, there's a costume party. And so it's just like kind of like disorienting and like unsettling in a really cool way and there's also like some like spanish religious processions where they're wearing yeah like, there's the a big catholic, hoods that are like in traditional catholic yeah, yeah and there's these huge pointed oh, weird. Hoods. black hoods yeah yeah so yeah this Catholicism so, is spooky i i only had time to do citizen kane and then two other orson wells movies today and so i kind of put it out on twitter while i was watching citizen kane and then came back and sort of tallied up what everybody says. So I ended up watching The Lady from Shanghai, which was great. Nice. Um, and I was hoping Mr. Arcaden was going to be up there, but no. I watched F for Fake instead, and I'm. it was good. It was interesting, but I was like, ah, I don't know. I wanted to watch a, like a straight narrative. So... Um, I got to do every weekend. I've been doing sort of a director series filling in blind spots. Um, and there's a bunch like Wells has done a bunch of like really strange movies and it's really interesting. Like he was all over the place, right? He did a bunch of like classic Shakespeare stuff and this Arcaden. And so anyways, um, I might, I might come back and do another like quad on Saturdays. I usually do a four, a four for, so maybe I'll do a, a Wells Forford in January or something. But this is this was on the short list. Uh, but that's interesting. I had no idea what it was about. So I just know the sort of, you know, the eyebrows <laughs> and the mustache. <laughs> of, Very distinctive look on yeah, Orson right. Wells in this one. <laughs> All right. So that's Mr. Cotton from 1955. Kristen, let's go to you for your first one. Yes. Um, so I'm picking a movie that also uses the detective story, like figuring out who someone is, but this one is like using it as a framework to investigate the Chinese American experience. And it is one of my favorites. Chan is missing from 1982 directed by Wayne Wang. Um, yeah, this is an awesome San Francisco movie. Uh, what a great where... idea for a pairing, Kristen. God damn yes, it, I love it. Thank you. <laughs> That's why I'm here. <laughs> uh, yeah, so in this movie, there's a, a two cab drivers played by Wood Moy and Mark Hayashi, and they gave someone, I think. That, they gave someone some money to like help them get a cab medallion faster or something like it's not really fully explained and it doesn't matter um and so this guy they give this guy chan what's his name chan hung uh some money a few days ago and they haven't heard from him since and they figure out that like no one's really seen them so that he's seen him so they start like talking to people he knows to like figure out where he might be and get their money back um but that's just like kind of a framework for really exploring like 
who this guy is and different aspects of the Chinese American experience that's done in this really amazing way. Um, I love this movie. And it also is also in black and white and it has some really great street photography of uh, San Francisco's Chinatown, just like people waiting for the bus and stuff that I love. Um, yeah, check it out. Nice. Have you seen it? I haven't it? seen it. Oh my no. God. Oh, it's so Gotta good. Add it to the list. It's yeah. pretty great. I I watched it last either last year or two years ago for my fifty two eighty two column at F this movie. Yeah, it would have been last year. And uh this is long before Criterion announced they were doing it, and so I had to watch a shitty ass copy on YouTube. Uh, but I still loved it. It was so interesting. So I can't wait to see the Criterion. I hope they. I assume they cleaned it up and it looks gorgeous. But yeah, I watched it. I okay. watched the Blu-ray. It looks good. Sweet. Uh, yeah, it is so, and, and like it's very um educational too because they, Wood Moy talks a lot about the Taiwanese experience. Um, and like the Ta- Taiwanese uh, versus the mainlanders yeah, PRC. and yeah, PRC. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. And uh, yeah, it's like, man, it's one of my all time favorite neo noirs. So it's good. good. Yeah, so good. And funny as hell. I think it's funny. It is funny. Yeah, the same, similar to Citizen Kane. Like True. it's, it's, it's funny also when Mark, you don't really expect it to be. Yeah, Mark Hayashi is hysterical in this movie. <laughs> and like, like an unlikely partnership, right? You have this younger guy and then you have Wood Moy who seems like he's always been 400 years old in whatever you see him in. So it's, yeah, it's, gosh, God damn it, what a great movie. That's the end of the show. We can't beat that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Jesus. All right. Um, what you I'm got, gonna, Anthony? I'm going to try to rival that. Uh, it's not a competition. So no. it's a competition. We rank things here. Everything gets a star rating. <laughs> Do you want to be Leland or Kane? <laughs> I'm Charles Foster. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm going to do this one first. Uh, I, I was posting a little bit about it the other day on Twitter, and it is Oliver Stone's 1988 adaptation of the Eric Bogosian play Talk Radio. Have either of you seen Talk Radio? No, I have not. Okay, so... It's loosely, well, like I said, it was originally uh, a play that Eric wrote because he's originally a Broadway guy, right? Plays and stuff. And so he wrote this play about a very, and if you know Bogosian, he's very political, very outspoken. Like, I mean, good guy, good guy outspoken, but um, he's hard to follow on Twitter because it's always, he's always amped up about something. Anyways, uh, so back in early to mid 80s, he wrote this play about sort of this um, kind of like Don Imus type uh, news radio jock. And um, the it's it's his sort of unraveling. And so uh, Oliver Stone optioned it. And he brought, so talk about a play adaptation for the screen, bringing the entire cast over 
which they did. And it's a small cast. Um, but Bogosian plays. Uh, oh, so what they did for the adaptation, Oliver Stone had read recently. Um, what's his name? Alan Berg, the biography of Alan Berg. Alan Berg was sort of this political commentator who had a radio show in Colorado Springs, I think it was. And he was assassinated. Very outspoken guy and some, uh, and that, of course, Colorado's quite right wing. So some uh, nut came in and shot him, killed him. And so they sort of combined Bogosian's play and then the story of Alan Berg. Uh, and so you have Bogosian playing this radio jockey called Barry Champlain. Barry Champlain. And um, he just takes late night calls from the people of Dallas. It's set in Texas. And these people calling in, they want to talk about just the most random shit. And he argues with them. But then at the beginning of the movie, Alec Baldwin is the station manager and John Pankow comes in and he's like some nationally, he represents some sort of ad agency. They're taking the show national come Monday. So now Barry feels all this uh, pressure and his producer is John C. McGinley doing exactly what John C. McGinley always does in movies. Uh, Leslie Hope is in there. Uh, Ellen Green plays Barry's ex-wife. And, she, God, she's so great, of course. My, and then Michael Wincott is this crazy caller. And like Citizen Kane, how it's this sort of technical marvel, how they shot things, how they lit things, the sound and everything, same goes for talk radio. Most of it just takes place in this one big radio studio. And um, on the Twilight Time Blu-ray, there's an interview with Oliver Stone, and he talks about how they made it. And it, it is, it'll blow your mind. Once you watch it and you see, oh, that's interesting, and hear him talk about it, how they did it was, you know, they had to create shit just like uh, Greg Toland did for Orson Welles on Citizen Kane. Um, but it's very tense. Uh, you have these very scary moments. And then at the end, Bogosian has this monologue that, I mean, he just lets loose. And he's on uh, some sort of dolly or like a, a Lazy Susan. He's turning. And the camera's going with him. And so we're looking right at him, close on him. But we see the background. And we see people in the you know the record the other studio and then then the office over here but it goes on for like 10 to 12 minutes and it's an incredible monologue so uh this is by far my favorite oliver stone movie and i really like oliver stone um his movies but this is absolutely incredible kind of you know the the filmmaking aspects make the good pairing, but also sort of this man losing touch with reality like Charles Foster Kane is in Citizen Kane. But uh, talk radio from 1988, I highly recommend it. Nice. It's been on my list for a while because I, too, 
really enjoy Oliver Stone. I just yeah. haven't gotten around to it. So, yeah, it's you know Thank it's you. one it's one of his lesser scene. I would assume you know because he's made some pretty big fucking movies. So, um, all right, Carmelita, your second pairing recommendation. You know, I thought I was gonna go with another fifties film, but you guys, you guys brought it into the latter 20, 20th century. So I am too. I am too. I'm going to go with my backup instead. Magnolia 1999 written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson starring so many people. Tom Cruise, <laughs> Philip Baker Hall, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Ricky Jay, William H. May. It just goes on and on. Julianne Moore. Um, but I, I thought, I thought about Magnolia as a possibility because it's, there's a lot of the connectedness of people, but each of those people feels alone is really prevalent throughout the film. How all of the characters are like their own little islands, but they're all also connected and they're all dealing with loneliness. There's a lot of really fraught, painful parent child relationships in the movie. I think too, when Kristen was pointing out how, how funny citizen Kane can be Magnolia has those moments too, where like overall it's a pretty sad movie. Yeah. But there are, it's punctuated with these these moments that are funny. And I can remember seeing Magnolia in the movie theater and P.T. Anderson, like his, his approach to the storytelling on this one, like I can remember people's reaction to the opening because it famously opens with these, the three stories of these three different deaths that seems completely unrelated to the rest of the movie. Although it totally does make sense. But when you're, the first time it's like wait what is this what kind of movie is this and there's scenes later on where surprising i don't want to spoil it just in case someone hasn't seen it me i've never seen it oh awesome there's surprising moments where you're like what what just happened and it made me think about there were probably folks who saw citizen cade in 41 that said what just happened (laughs) what this is cool i've never seen anything like this i had that feeling when I saw Magnolia in the movie theater the first time. So that's my, that's my second. Kristen, have you seen Magnolia? Yeah, it's been a long time. uh, But I do remember people, there was like controversy (laughs) because it wasn't like, like a, a totally fed to you package, you know, anytime, you know, the same thing with like Mulholland Drive, but Mulholland Drive was like way more like that, where people were like, what is it about? What's even happening? But I remember a little bit of that with Magnolia, like people not really accepting the uh, more fantastical elements of it. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I I just know there's, there's lots of frogs in the movie. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I, you know, I've only seen There Will Be Blood, uh, Punch Drunk, Master, and Phantom Thread. So I haven't seen Licorice Pizza, Boogie Nights, Inherent Vice, or Magnolia. Boogie Nights? I haven't seen Boogie Nights, I know, yeah. Holy shit. And I like to talk about (laughs) porn, and I've never seen Boogie Nights. Yeah, well, (laughs) let me tell you, friend, Magnolia, you, like I, 
you and I are kindred spirits in loving, sad movies that suffering and melancholy. Oh yeah. That's like the ultimate melancholy movie. (laughs) I rented it. I rented it and I sat down with a friend and my brother. This was when it first was like a new release on video. We went and got the videotape and I made them sit down and watch it because I had seen it in the theater and was just like so in love with it. And when the movie was over, they, the looks on their faces and my brother says, I feel like someone just killed my best friend. (laughs) And my other friend was like, why did you make us watch this? (laughs) You want to see this movie. Everybody's sad. Everybody's really sad. Do do I smell a sad Vember? Yeah. Adding it to the sad Vember list. The month is not over. No, it's not. Sad Vember. (laughs) Yes. I tried to get my co-host to do a Patreon episode on Sad Vember and radio silence. Nobody wants to talk it's about not it's not my genre. <laughs> Sad movies. Yeah. Yeah, Love we it. uh yeah. The, you know, yeah, uh Carmelita, you and I are the uh we're the outcasts when it comes to the sad stuff, but gosh. Give yeah, it to it. me. Yeah. I'm with <laughs> Sweet. Okay. Maybe so obviously I need to do a PTA uh director series one of these weekends um probably only be able to squeeze maybe three of them in there but yeah like when i tell people i haven't seen boogie nights they're like what why why not i'm like i i don't know i just just, never got to it that's okay i got to it and i saw it in the movie theater three and a half times oh Three and a half what happened, times. What happened yeah, in the half? What's the story? Uh, the halftime is that we got to the movie theater super early and it was showing on a couple of screens. And so while we waited for our showing, we went into another showing that was already in progress <laughs> and we watched the last half of the film before going to see it again. Okay. <laughs> That's like replicating like the 1970s or whatever yeah, exactly, experience right. where you just walk yes. in at any time yeah, and wait Times for it Square, to start yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah when i do the newspaper ads uh when i'm looking through those old ads it's like uh you know continuously showing starting at 1 p.m it's like just show up whenever <laughs> buy a ticket and show up whenever people used I, to go to the movie theater yeah i miss those days where because i mean shit we used to do that all the time at the amc you know there's like 24 screens it's like oh, let's go an hour early and just kind of hop around to the different yeah can't do that anymore once upon a time i have morals too i wouldn't do that anyways anymore (laughs) uh kristen let's hear your second pairing okay so citizen kane is like a thinly veiled uh portrait of a william randolph hearst type character so another movie where it's a thinly veiled portrait of someone is, in this case, a portrait of not David Bowie, and that is Velvet yes! Goldmine from 1998, Yay! directed by Todd Haynes. So this movie, this is like, a, this is probably like the most colorful movie 
maybe one of the most colorful movies. So I do like the contrast with uh, the black and white Citizen Kane, but they both like they're both visually interesting. Citizen Kane is still awesome to look at. Um, but yeah, this is like it also has that similar um, like uh, non-linear uh information gathering about a person by interviewing various people style um so let's see christian bale is a reporter i think and he's supposed to do a story on uh this character brian slade who like faked his own death who's like he's like a, a pop bowie style uh glam rock guy who faked his own death a few years prior um and so and he's played by jonathan reese myers and so christian bale's going around and like trying to figure out who brian slade is and there's also like a iggy pop slash lou reed analog played by ewan mcgregor whose character is kurt wilde um yeah i mean this is this movie i don't think the don't pay attention to the plot that much it's not it's not super important i don't feel like oh and then the other aspect is like the the christian bale's reporter character was also like heavily into the glam rock scene in the 70s when it was happening so there's also like his own personal um perspective and experience of like all of these events um but mostly it's like some really great musical numbers and very glittery amazing costumes and it's so in that way it's also like citizen kane just like delightful to watch yeah yeah i've never seen velvet goldmine uh, this yeah this is like a like a high school Kristen like very influential <laughs> movie really? because I'm obsessed it's just with like it glam gl so glam like the it's most one of my glam. favorite films <laughs> one of my favorites i adore it i still have my vhs copy nice that i went out and bought i bought a copy of the the screenplay like they put out on paperback <laughs> i have the soundtrack on vinyl i'm obsessed yeah. with this the movie. soundtrack is very killer like yes. yeah top top notch soundtrack i thought about pairing this but i never shut up about the velvet gold mine so <laughs> i'm glad someone else brought it up so that yeah i can I, talk uh, about it and it wasn't me yeah i've only seen uh carol which is yes it's a sad vember movie gavel there's been debate about that carol obviously it's a sad vember movie um and it's one of my favorites so i really need to get into todd haynes here you know safe and Velvet. There's a complication. The velvet gold mine is very hard to find. Oh, is it? Yes. Oh no. I don't know that it's currently streaming anywhere. I'm actually going to pull up an app right now and check. It used to be available for rent on Amazon. I don't know if it still is. The Blu-ray and DVD are extremely hard to find. Out of print, okay. Somebody needs to put out another blu-ray release of this Go please yeah, someone if you're listening please i mean this is a, i don't really care about 4k but this is a movie i would think would really stun i'm saying i don't really know what yeah. the deal is <laughs> well it's uh 
let's just say it's out there. <laughs> okay, looks like you can rent it right now. Okay, you should pay for it. <laughs> yeah, you can rent it or buy it digitally right now. So that's good. Pay for it. Yeah, good. Oh, it's worth every penny. I mean, yeah, you get to see those little little beautiful people. Little beautiful Ewan McGregor and Ewan McGregor full frontal nudity. Oh yeah. There oh. we go. Got it. Dicks. Covered in glitter. Oh, nobody knows oil. what that's we talked about. No one's gonna know about we're celebrating dicks masturbation. Here and, like, what? and then he drops trow and you that see was, him uh, in all his glory. Pre-recording. That's, yeah. <laughs> we like dicks around here, guys. <laughs> if they're Patreon subscribers, you're gonna be like, oh yeah, they talked about dicks. You should have uh, subscribed to our Patreon. Hello. Because you're gonna hear hey. us talk about dicks. Uh good to know. Man, he used to pull out his wiener all the time. All the time. The, 90s, the pillow he? book, train Why spotting. Not? Train spotting, yeah. Why As you can not? tell, I kept <laughs> close eye on Ewan McGregor's <laughs> penis in all of the various places that it would appear. Good for him. Good for yeah, him. it was good for us too. Yeah, once upon a time before <laughs> Disney for everyone. and before Star Wars, Disney. Okay, oh. I'm not bitter about it. Oh, well, I guess I saw a different Star Wars movie because <laughs> he, oh, Obi Obi Wan Kenobi. No, that's that erase that. Take that back. That's stupid. I'll think of a better one. Delete. <laughs> Delete. The Force is strong <laughs> with this one. <laughs> Uh, the force is hard with this one. Yes. There we go. Uh, bring it back. Let's be serious. Yes. Enough with the dick talk. Um, okay. So sort of cheated, uh, uh, but it's not really a cheat because I'm doing my original pairing when we originally were, were going to do this episode back in 2017. Uh, my original pairing was going to be. 1987's The Last Emperor from director Ooh. Bernardo Bertolucci. And this is a movie. It's normally I try to go for like lesser seen movies according to Letterboxd. Uh, this is like 61,000 people have logged it. It's a lot higher than I normally like to go. But people like never talk about this movie. And this movie fucking rules. So this was one of the first, I don't know why it was, but this was one of the first VHS we had when I was a kid. And, you know, back when VCRs cost $300 and VHS cost $60. Um, but we had The Last Emperor. I don't know why. Uh, so all I remember about this movie is the beginning, the kid shitting in the in the tray. In the bowl. Right? Yeah. In the bowl. And that's all I remembered about it. But, and why, you know, I, I'm probably six years old when I'm watching the last, you know, it's like Carmelita watching Citizen Kane when she's eight. Here's Anthony watching The Last Emperor when he's six. Um, so that's the only thing I remembered about it. But when I, I found, hold on. Oh, maybe I got rid of it. It's back there somewhere in my, VHS pile. I think it's there. Whatever. Was it a double VHS? Uh, was it one of the doubles? No. It should be. It's a long, it's, long. Be. It's, it's a long movie. <laughs> what the fuck? Oh, hold on. 
bear with me. I gotta find this. Why don't I have it? It would be here it is. No, Even if you find it. it, the listeners won't get to see it. Listeners, see? Listen. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> listeners, it is a single VHS. He's single VHS. Um but really good condition. And I mean it's an original anyway. Mint inbox. Nice. Mint inbox. Uh <laughs> so I watched it and I was like, God, this movie fucking rules. And I got the criterion. Uh so I don't watch the VHS, but I can't throw this away. This is so no. it's so pristine, the boxes. Anyways. I still have um, all my VHS. Yeah, I have a hard time, man. Um my wife does not like it. Anyways, this isn't about my I'm marital divorced, problems. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to marriage talk. Um <laughs> God damn it. The last emperor, here we go. I forgot what I was gonna say. Um it is this um sort of epic tale, and it's based on the I don't know if it's a biography or autobiography of the actual last emperor of China called Pu Yi. And in the movie, uh, Grown Up Puyi is played by the great John Lone. But this movie sort of chronicles his entire life from when he's uh, a baby and a child as the emperor of the lost or the lost or forbidden city. I think it's the forbidden city in China. And uh, they bring over an English tutor uh, played by none other than Peter O'Toole. Talk about charm. I think Peter O'Toole is the ultimate charming actor. Uh, and he is so good in this movie. And his friendship, this is, you know, think about the friendship between Leland and, and Charlie and Citizen Kane. The friendship between uh, Pu Yi and Peter O'Toole's name in this is Reginald Fleming Johnson. And their friendship is so beautiful um but anyways eventually uh china becomes a republic and they you know kick out the emperor and he's sort of exiled they they tear down the walls to the forbidden city and he's sort of exiled out in mongolia and it's it's bernardo bertolucci of course it's going to be absolutely breathtaking it is so gorgeous and it's expansive and we're going all over Asia. But the the great thing is that, like Citizen Kane, it's told in, in flashback. And it's it's Puyi as just another like peasant in present day present day in the film, China. And like he gets arrested and they're they're questioning him, what's your name? Who are you? And like he has all these memories going through his head and, and that's those are the flashbacks we get. And it's such a touching story. And then at the end, uh, I'm not going to completely spoil it, but he goes back to they don't completely tear down the Forbidden City. So he goes back. And I mean, I'm a mess. And I've, I've seen this thing maybe half a dozen times in the past five years. Just completely break down, weeping full on. It is so beautiful. Uh, I love this movie. And I think, man, more people should be talking about this. Obviously, lots of people have seen it. But I think it's worth talking about way more than it is, which is never. 
Oh. Carmelita, you like this movie? You've seen it? I, take I it. love it. Yeah. And I'm, I am guilty of not talking about it enough. Because it's uh, well, gorgeous. You're I've fired. You're not coming back here ever I, again. You know, I know. <laughs> I haven't even thinking. seen it. Oh, oh, you're in for a treat. It's so beautiful. It is. Oh, the color red and gold and and just. Yeah, it's a very emotional film. It's a it's a work of art. It's really and ta talking about like Citizen Kane doing the in camera trickery. Um, the Last Emperor, there's this one shot uh, early on in the film where the camera kind of pulls back and you see the entire um, army or whatever, like the people who live within the guard, the, the guard. Yes, the guard. Um, and it's not like CGI or like matte paintings. It's a cast of thousands of people and they're all wearing you know like just beautiful period regalia you know headdresses with the feathers i mean it is astonishing uh just the size of i mean everything this movie is just and it's not i keep wanting to say bloated but that's a negative thing there's just a lot in this movie and all of it is good you know, there's no point. And, you know, you get yeah. this love story with the great um, Joan Chen is also in this. Uh, Dennis Dunn, great uh, San Francisco. You know, he's in a bunch of San Francisco movies, uh, The Big Trouble in Little China. Um, it's great. It's just the whole movie is so good. So carve out 19 hours of your time to watch The Last Emperor. I'm joking. <laughs> it's only not even three hours, is it? How long is this? One um, 163 minutes. I mean, you know. Not bad. I mean, by today's standards. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where a superhero movie can be almost four hours long. Like, come on. Yeah. That's not bad. Yeah, this I is. I think it's streaming on HBO Max. So it's, yeah, it's, it's accessible. Yeah, and it's on Criterion Channel, too. It has a, a the Blu-rays gorgeous. So um, I got to keep this. This VHS, obviously, that I'll never watch again. Why am I holding on to this? I don't know why. Sentimental. It's your rosebud. <laughs> the Last Emperor, and I dropped the VHS, and that's that's the end of my life. <laughs> no, it's it, my VHS. I look at it every day, and it's not. I don't have many anymore, but I look at it and I think, if I were to drop dead right now. My family would be stuck with all this shit that they don't care about. This is all my stuff. What am I doing? They'll have an estate sale. It's fine. We're more just throw it in the trash type of people. You know what? And you, okay, here's the thing. Here's the thing. And this circles back to Citizen Kane. You never know. Oh things only, we give things meaning. Things don't have inherent value or meaning. We give them meaning. And so like, just like how Charles Foster Kane went and got all the stuff his mother had left behind when he died. He had a $2 wood stove in Xanadu piled with all of those amazing European statues and artworks and all these luxury items and a $2 stove because it belonged to his mother and it mattered to him. So right. you never know what your kids are going to want to remember you by. You don't know. Probably your 
Last That's Emperor VHS. Obviously, the Last Emperor. It VHS. might be. You don't know. The thing <laughs> he loves this VHS so much. The thing I... that will spark a memory of. I remember my dad and his love of that poop scene in the beginning. <laughs> you don't know. They'll, they'll rewind the tape and watch it again and again. <laughs> Crying it as he's, yeah. There's these sentimental things that just, we have no control over it, but it just means something to us. And there's no telling what that's going to be. Chris, and I can just imagine every time I say we're trash people, we just throw it away. I can just imagine you like cringing, like, no. I was going to say, <laughs> I'll fly out to buy the complete <laughs> Anthony King collection. So preserve you know if the alternative is she, trash yeah. Kristen's going to be my personal archivist let's, let's, let's hope That's I don't die just... for many many years friends no knock <laughs> on wood friends I don't have any wood anywhere um, <laughs> alright let's wrap this up Carmelita my god this was so much fun I love talking with you I'm glad uh, the three of us got together that you two finally got to meet and uh, we're going to do it again soon where can people so. find you online? So, folks can find me on Twitter still. I'm still there as of this recording. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows in three weeks? <laughs> Who knows? And Letterboxd. Same handle for both. At Carmelita says. And the feeling is so mutual. My friend, such a pleasure to get to talk to Kristen. So good to talk to yeah. you again. Always an honor to be on cult movies when I get asked, and I would love to come back. Oh, thank you. Uh, Kristen, where can people find you? I'm still on Twitter at snail with an E on the end, S-N-A-I-L-E. That's also me on Letterboxd, and I'm on Instagram at cinema snail with an E on the end. Yeah. yeah, these this is this is interesting. You know, I wouldn't mind Twitter going away because that's just one less thing I have to put into the show notes <laughs> and like find the links for everything. <laughs> uh, you can find this show on Twitter and Instagram and Letterboxd, not Letterboxd, just Twitter and Instagram at Cult Movies Pod. You can find me at AK Donnelly. That's A K D O N E L L Y on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. Did I do that right? I don't know. Um, and then. Oh, Patreon. Check out our Patreon.com slash Cult Movies Podcast. For as little as $1 a month, you can hear Kristen and Vinny and I talk about dicks. It's worth every penny, friends. <laughs> and other things. We talk about other things, but... All kinds I, of things. Bobby at <laughs> dinner tonight, she's like, what are you guys talking about tomorrow night? And I said, eh, dicks. And she said, you guys talk a lot, of, talk about a lot of porn on that show. I was like, meh. Kind of, but yeah, sometimes. Because last week we did porn noir. We're just what? talking about male full frontal nudity. That's not the same as It's porn. not porn. No. It's just dicks, man. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily have to be pornographic or even erotic. It, my my picks will not be uh, erotic at all. <laughs> Look forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a patron, and so I look forward. Yeah. Yes, good. Um, I would encourage say, all cult movie listeners if you got a buck a month I mean come on it's, and, it's worth it trust me we appreciate that Carmelita thank you so much for coming on and I can't wait to do it again <laughs>